the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Calcedon Report number 126, February 1976. In recent years, there has been a parallel growth of the idea of human rights and bureaucracy. This common growth has been a closely related fact, so much so that Peter Berger, Bridget Berger, and Hans Fried Kellner in The Homeless Mind, 1973, speak of bureaucratically identifiable rights. There must, they point out, be some bureaucracy to complain to, the humanist version of prayer, and bureaucratic procedures to enforce rights. Thus there is a progression from the notion of universal human rights to the notion of a necessary universal bureaucracy. The United Nations may be seen as a somewhat ironic anticipation of this cosmological vision of bureaucracy. Page 115. In brief, Humanism's emphasis on human rights leads to the nightmare world of a totalitarian bureaucracy and George Orwell's 1984. Why? It is important for us to understand this relationship because our future depends on it. There must be and is in every system of thought and social order a sovereign power, a determiner, a central controlling agency, or else there is no cosmos, unity, or order possible, only chaos and confusion. If that power is the triune God, then while man can flounder in evil, confusion, and disorder because of his sin, he is still able, on the human level in history, to assert himself against all other powers. The history of Christendom has often been marred by great evils, but it has been to a degree unequaled elsewhere, volatile, rich in struggle, contention, and growth. It has resisted stratification and petrifaction. We can disagree strongly with the medieval English rebels and still must recognize the intensely Christian framework of their revolt. When they opposed the lords of the realm with their battle cry, When Adam delved and Eve span, who was then the gentleman? To defend themselves against tyranny, they had God's yardstick to apply to all man-made orders. Moreover, even in defeat, they had the assurance of faith that since God is the Lord of history, in time their cause would triumph. God's word and law gave them a court of appeals against man and a freedom from any total claim by man. In humanism, man is his own God, and the state exercises the deity as the general will of man. Therefore, human rights require man, in example, collective man as the state, to assure them. 
God is omnipotent, and in time His purposes shall prevail in history. The state, as the new God, in order to assure the triumph of the human rights it proclaims, must gain greater power over man. It must become omnipotent. As a result, in the name of human rights, man is obliterated. The more fully the state and its bureaucracy become man's champion, as in Marxism, the greater the oppression of man. In the Christian scheme of things, man's progress depends on his struggle with sin, in himself and in the world, so that by the grace of God he grows in freedom and dominion and his ability to exercise knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. In the humanistic scheme of things, human rights requires that a bureaucracy control man for his welfare and freedom, so that as Orwell saw, slavery becomes freedom. We may therefore rail as much as we choose against the growth of bureaucracy, but it will only continue to grow as long as man remains a humanist. There must be a center, too, and a governing power in life, and for humanism, the choice is between anarchism, every man is his own god, and the bureaucratic state. Human rights require the state as god to assure them. As a result, complaints against the inefficiency of the bureaucracy usually lead to the creation of more bureaucracy, because more power must be handed to this new God to make him function. But this is not all. Just as the God of Scripture is all-knowing, so the new God must have a total knowledge of his subjects, and must build up a data bank on all of them. The kind of bureaucracy envisioned by some would require the state to expand more than is humanly possible in order to have the knowledge for full planning power. The future of all bureaucracies headed in that direction is a growing incompetence rather than power. The biblical answer is not bureaucracy, but God. Man under God, stumbling, growing, developing in history, knowing that His essential bill of rights is the Word of God. It is not the state, but the Word of God which has the binding word. The purpose of the stumbling, painful growth which freedom under God makes possible is the development of dominion man. A bureaucracy reduces man to the status of disposable man, something to be used to create the supposedly glorious future. Stalin callously held that it was necessary to scramble some eggs, in example, liquidate millions, in order to make an omelet, to create the socialist paradise. This is the grim irony of humanism. Its doctrine of human rights becomes an instrument for the destruction of man. The more vocal the cry for human rights becomes in our day, the more fearful modern man rightly is because each legal gain in his battle increases the powers of the bureaucracy over him. The bureaucracy grows, but not his freedom, his safety, or his rights. Disposable man has no rights. Chalcedon Report number 127, March 1976. In the modern era, reform has very often been a prelude to revolution, not because the reforms have not been needed, but because they have been stiffly rational in conception rather than realistic. The humanistic reformers have erred badly, first, in developing the rational programs for reform which are rootless and unrelated to the content of men's lives. Thus, instead of satisfying those whom they were intended to help, the reforms have only left them more disgruntled. 
The advances have often been very real, but they have not been welcome. Second, the humanist has concluded that the life of reason and of rational freedom is the most desirable life, but unhappily, most people have preferred bondage and their dream, like that of all slaves, is of bondage with plenty. An example of a reform which aggravated discontent was the abolition of serfdom in Tsarist Russia. It was a triumph of liberalism, but it created conditions which became a breeding ground for disaster. Serfdom in Russia was a modern product, only a couple of centuries old. Some serfs lived better than others, but most would have envied the life of an American slave. Their huts were without windows or chimneys and without any artificial light, except for the limited use of bits of wood and tallow candles. The freezing cold outside made it necessary to keep newborn calves indoors. The serf, however wretched, had some security. Also, he regarded all of the Lord's land as in some sense his also. Freedom handed him over to the world of modern statism and taxation. He was at once taxed, and if he lacked the income to pay his taxes, he was imprisoned for at least two weeks, and then, if no funds were forthcoming, everything he had was sold down to the family milk cow and chickens. If he had nothing, or if the sale failed to produce enough, he worked off the taxes and forced labor wherever the state officials chose to send him. In 1856, Alexander II told the aristocracy of Moscow, in preparing them for the emancipation of the serfs, reforms must come from above unless one wishes them to come from below. Unfortunately, the reforms from above came as disruptions and further tyranny to the serfs and a distrust of everyone above developed. Reforms rationally conceived at the top are too often seen as disruptive and threatening to those below, and the result is the creation of a rootless mob below whose lifestyle has been broken, their loyalties shattered, and their conditions all too little improved. Statistically, the ex-serfs were in a much better condition. Realistically, they were discontented and felt cheated, and their discontent made it possible later for professional revolutionists to take over the country. Humanism has all too often failed to distinguish between reason and rationalism. Reason is a necessary tool in man's exercise of dominion, and it is basic to knowledge and is inseparable from righteousness which requires, among other things, the intelligent understanding of and commitment to God's law. Rationalism is the rigid application of man's idea of reason to reality as the ultimate yardstick and criterion, whereas godly reason recognizes that it is the mind and reason of God which is ultimate. Rationalism thus tries to remake the world in its own image, after its own reason, and its end result is a collapse into irrationalism. It forces a product of man's mind onto reality in order to make reality man's creation. In the insane, this is unreason, whereas in humanistic planners, it is irrationalism. Rationalism once believed that the universe to some degree corresponded to man's reason, but now, with pragmatism and existentialism, it no longer believes this. The only area of rationality is in the mind of man. 
but in the light of Fraud and Skinner, modern humanism cannot place much trust in even that faint glimmer of rationality. It is held, however, that by some miracle, rationality will prevail in an elite group of scientific planners and through them conquer humanity and the universe. As the new gods of creation, by whose fiat word the world is to be remade, they logically regard humanity as it is, as the realm of chaos. Out of this chaos, light and order are to be brought forth by their supposedly sovereign word. But will it? The new proverbs of humanism are marked by a wry and radical pessimism. If anything can go wrong, it will. If you see light at the end of the tunnel, it's not the sun, but a train coming. In the long run, we are all dead. A fool and his hope are soon parted. There is an increasing cynicism about all humanistic reform plans, and modern man is more and more concerned with only enough peace to enjoy himself. The philosophy is close to that of ancient Rome. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Give us more and more, men say, not reform and change, but a respite. But history requires change. It requires movement. Time does not recess so that an era can take time for play. Humanism is in power, but it cannot function as the motive force for action, production, and change. Its troops are no longer eager for orders, but rather eager for discharge. The time is ripe for a strong and virile Christianity, one firmly committed to biblical law to command the day. Nothing else can provide a comparable motive force for the reconstruction of all things. Change is certain, but whether or not it will be progress depends on who controls it. The Search for a Humanistic Eden Almost weekly we read of a delegation of congressmen, congresswomen, diplomats, actors, actresses, professors, and others who have made a trip to Red China speak glowingly of the great accomplishments of this ostensible paradise. The real horror of Red China was effectively set forth by Tung Chi Ping and Humphrey Evans a few short years ago in the Thought Revolution. Why the insistence that a new world order exists in that nightmare world? And why the shift of liberal hope from the Soviet Union to Red China? Only lately have the illusions concerning the Soviet Union begun to wane. Alexander Solhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago, volumes 1 and 2, have contributed greatly to that end. But the facts were well known long before his day. They were described amply in the 1920s and 30s and thereafter. Why the rejection of those facts? In the 1930s, I heard professors repeatedly describe Stalin as a stable, conservative, and humane force as against Trotsky. Then in the late 1950s and the 1960s, the successors of Stalin were presented as less repressive and more humane than Stalin. In both cases, they were wrong. The humanistic presupposition is this. What man decrees must be, will be. The Marxists in Russia as true humanists, decreed the birth of a new world order, a humanistic order. True, Stalin said, and the humanists everywhere echoed, you can't make an omelet without breaking the eggs, so the breaking of the eggs, tens of millions of men, 
was casually accepted as the road to the perfect omelet, the humanist paradise. But by the 1970s, it was beginning to be obvious that the omelet smelled badly. The trouble with the Soviet Union, the humanist apologized, is too much bureaucracy. This evades, of course, the heart of the matter, the evil of the humanist dream. The hope was retained. It was simply transferred to Red China. Always with the hope that the Soviet Union will get back on the track again. The roots of this insanity are in Hegel, with his great humanistic first principle, the rational is the real. What man decrees is logically necessary will become reality. On this principle, men everywhere are being murdered to make the humanistic illusion a reality. The collapse of this fantasy, this insanity, is inevitable. Only what God decreed stands. There is no other reality. The grandiose and murderous fantasies of humanism are doomed. The Failures of Humanistic Salvation Instead of being depressed by current events, we have every reason as Christians to feel vindicated. On all sides we see the failures of humanistic plans of salvation. Let us glance at a few examples of such failures. The idea that dollars can save the world is dying a grim and painful death. Billions of dollars have been poured out as a salve for all human ills, and instead of a grateful and redeemed world, we see in 1976 a far more critical world problem than in 1946. Salvation by military power and interventionism has been tried by the most of the great powers with little success as far as man's basic problems are concerned, and with much loss of life and ill will. Both the USA and the USSR are now the objects of ill will and the subjects of self-doubt because of their costly interventionism. Salvation by psychiatric and psychological rehabilitation has not solved the problem of crime, but only aggravated it. Salvation by education, that most popular doctrine, has created instead a generation and more of new barbarians. Salvation by status law, applied by messianic legislators and judges, is shattering the fabric of society. Salvation by monetary manipulation is destroying money, and with it sound economic wealth. Seeing these things and more should encourage and strengthen our hearts, because they demonstrate the growing decay and collapse of humanism. They stress all the more the need to return to God's plan, redemption through His Son, and then the application of His law, as the ordained plan of conquest whereby covenant man, as God's king, priest, and prophet in Christ, will exercise dominion over every area of life and thought to the glory of the triune God. There is no other valid answer, and current events are a dramatic demonstration of this. If we are too distressed over these events, we need to ask ourselves the question, are we pulling for the wrong side? Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus.
It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he has shown us by his pain, the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree where he died for you and me. Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. 
May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.